Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. The goal of this series is to paint a total and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. I hope you enjoy. And this brings us to our first scripture reading, which comes from the Gospel of Luke. Both are from the Gospel of Luke. This is from chapter 1, verses 8 through 20. It says, once when he was serving as priest before God, and he, by the way, is Zechariah, that is his name, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit." He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our second scripture reading comes from Luke again. It's chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. Again, you'll notice that this takes place in the temple. This is actually after Jesus is born. I know it's not Adventy, but whatever. (laughs) When the time came for their purification, according to the Lord of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him What was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, if you are here last week, uh, you would know that we're doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. And this concept behind this series is that many of you, I'm sure, have you been to Christmas services for most of your life, right? You probably know the story of Jesus' birth fairly well. But many of us, we don't really know the history surrounding what was happening around the time that Jesus was born. 
And so the purpose of this series is to really talk about, you know, what were the events of the time? What was happening? What was going on culturally, socially, economically, religiously? We're going to paint a very full and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. So last week, what we talked about was the birth of the Roman Empire. Do you all remember this? Or a week ago, maybe you don't, for those of you who are here. So birth of the Roman Empire, we started with that. And what I told you is, is that when the Roman Empire came to be, there was an area of the world known as Judea that they were in control of. And they put in charge of this area of Judea, which of course is the Holy Land, that's what we call it today. They put in charge a man named Herod the Great, or King Herod. And King Herod, he was known as the king of the Jews. And do you remember what I told you about that? I explained to you that even though he was called the king of the Jews, was he actually Jewish? No, he was not. He converted to Judaism for the benefit of his subjects. And the fact is, he didn't really know that much about Judaism. He followed some of the kosher laws, but generally speaking, he really wasn't all that concerned with it. And so... This put him at odds with many of the Jews who took their religion very, very seriously. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be trying to paint for you a portrait of the religious landscape that Jesus was born into. So I think it will come as no surprise to you that the Jews of that day and time, they were not a monolith. They all didn't just believe one thing, right? I mean, Christians... Do we all believe one thing? No, because there's what? There's different denominations, right? Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, we're the best, right? All of those things. So we all are Christian, but we do, and sometimes in vastly different ways, look at the Christian religion very, very differently. Well, the same was true of these people who lived in the area of Judea. So there were all kinds of different thoughts and beliefs. We're going to look at four big sects in Judaism this morning. We're going to be looking at the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. These were the main four from that period of time. I'm going to give you a little brief history of each of them, and then you're going to try to understand a little bit about like who were these people, what do they believe, because I think it's true, right? Religion played a pretty big role in who Jesus was. Can we agree on that? So it's kind of important to understand what it is that they thought. Okay, let's start with the Sadducees. They're top of our list for today. So the Sadducees, they were made of the upper crust of Judean society. These people were wealthy, for sure. They had a lot of money. They were that top 1% of the area of Judea. And the truth is, the Sadducees were really the priests who ran the temple in Jerusalem. That's who they were. And remember, we talked about the temple last week. So the temple, of course, was where the Jews would go to be able to worship their God. And I told you, what did Herod do with the temple? He took the temple and he expanded it, right? He built it up. He made it a much larger thing. And, of course, the religious Jews loved this a lot. And what you would do is you go to the temple. So you guys see there in the picture, you go in and you would, the whole goal wasn't, you didn't just come to worship like we do here. If you wanted to be forgiven, you had to sacrifice an animal. So you would buy an animal and you'd go in and you would give it to the priest who would then sacrifice it on your behalf. That's how you'd be forgiven. That's the laws of the Old Testament. Now, we read this morning about Zechariah. He's a priest who works in the temple. So what is he? What is he? Who's he associated with? He's a, 
He's a Sadducee, right? Now, what you have to realize is that, you know, we read this guy and we think, oh, everybody loves Zechariah, right? He would have been seen as a traitor. Because here's the thing. Everybody who worked in that temple was loyal to who? King Herod. If you remember last week, we talked about how when King Herod came to town, he got rid of anybody who didn't agree with him. By getting rid of, I mean he killed them. So everybody who was in the temple, they agreed with King Herod or they were loyal to him. And so many of the average people of that day and time, they looked at the temple as a corrupt institution. And they felt that it needed to be cleansed. Because here's the thing, if the priests are loyal to Herod and Herod is loyal to Rome, who's running the temple? Rome is, right? So it's interesting in this, isn't it? In the story, what happens at the end at the first scripture reading? What happens to Zechariah? He loses his what? His voice, right? He's silenced. This is a metaphor. This is the idea that God is going to silence the priests. He's silencing this whole group of people. And why? Because Jesus is going to come in. He's going to purify the Jewish religion. Get rid of the need for the priests altogether. Because Jesus, he cared about the ordinary average person. Whereas the Sadducees, did they? Not really. All right. Speaking of ordinary average people, that brings us to our next group known as the Pharisees. So, the Pharisees, you probably know them because they're mentioned more than any other group in the New Testament. They're all over the place. And they cared about ordinary average people. The Pharisees were very focused on education. That's really what they cared about. So anybody who wanted to learn more about their, uh, their faith, Judaism, they would take you in and they would teach it to you. Kind of like what I'm doing in here. So don't complain when I try to teach you a little bit about what's going on, right? So they would teach you about it. And they would go and do this in the synagogues. Now, what is a synagogue? A synagogue, that's just a word for house of prayer. That's all it means. And the reason why you would go to a synagogue is because you were too geographically distant from the temple in Jerusalem. So you go to a city or a village. That's where you'd go to do it. It's very similar in Catholicism. Where's the center of Catholicism? Rome, Vatican, right? But not everybody can just fly there every Sunday, right? So what do you do? You go to your local parish, and it's a substitute for going to the Vatican. The synagogue was a substitute for going to the temple. So the Pharisees, what they would do in the synagogues is they had a very specific way of understanding the laws that were found in the Old Testament. So in the Torah, what's the Torah? What are the books? You know the first one, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books. Do you remember how many laws are in there? 613. Do you know how you can remember 613? 6 plus 1 plus 3 adds up to 10, which is like, yeah, okay, we're working on the math. I know, I know it's early. <laughs> so, so 6 plus 1 plus 3, 10, and there's, of course, 10 commandments, right? It always, it comes back to the 10 commandments. So there's 613 laws. These laws regulate everything from what you are supposed to do, your actions, to what you eat and drink, to what you are supposed to wear, to how you deal with illness and disease. The Pharisees were very, very concerned with making sure you didn't break any of these laws. Let me give you an example of a law. You're following one right now. Observe the Sabbath. Now, of course, the Sabbath back then was when? What day? Saturday, not Sunday. But that's because it's Jewish. So, Saturday. Now, the idea on the Sabbath is that you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to rest, right? You're not supposed to work. 
According to Exodus 31.14, if you work on the Sabbath, you know what happens? You get put to death. Capital punishment. I think we should reinstitute that. People would come to church for sure. You all would be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We would never have a problem with budgets or anything from that point forward. Everybody would be like, what do you need? So they wanted to make sure nobody broke those commandments. So the Pharisees, they did this thing. They created these rules around the laws, more rules. They were known as gazeras. So a gazera would be something like this. They would say, on the Sabbath, you can take 40 steps to go out to your well, but more than 40 steps, and that's going to result in you breaking the Sabbath. That will result in you working. So if you had to take 40 steps to go out, if it was more than 40 steps to go out to your well, that meant you needed to get your well water like a day early, bring it back in so that you wouldn't work on the Sabbath. A gazira literally means fence. So the idea is, is that the law is in the center of the fence, right? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. If you observe the gazira, then you know you're not going to break the law. Make sense? Okay. So if you've read the Gospels, you probably know that Jesus is always debating with the Pharisees. And the big thing that he doesn't like about them is they seem to be more concerned with the rules than the actual spirit of the law. So what's the spirit of the law? It's what you guys are doing right now. You're resting, you're coming in, you're worshiping God, right? That's the concept. He, that, the minutia of you take 40 steps and you break the law, he's like, I think we're, get, we're kind of missing the larger point here. Now, if you think, though, that the Pharisees are sticklers for the rules, they've got nothing on the Essenes. So the Essenes are the next group of people who we get to. The Essenes, they were a much smaller community. They lived out in the middle of the desert, very harsh living, and they were what's known as an ascetic community, meaning that they didn't indulge in any worldly pleasures. So they were celibate, they had no sexual relationships, and they lived in voluntary poverty. It sounds like a lot of fun living with the Essenes, right? So a lot of people who went out to live with them didn't make it super long. They would go out there and they'd be like, these rules are too harsh, and they would leave. Now, one thing that they did, which was really, really interesting, is that every day they would ritually purify themselves. They would dip themselves fully in water and come back up, which many scholars believe is where we get the concept of baptism from. It likely came from this group called the Essenes. And the reason why they did this is because they were preparing themselves every day for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this last point is actually really, really important. Because what are we doing on Christmas? What's the whole point of Christmas, guys? We're waiting for the coming of the Messiah in who? Jesus, right? We're anticipating his birth. So I want to take a moment because we use this word Messiah all the time. But I don't think many of us really understand what does that word even mean? And what are we talking about with it? So the common understanding of the word Messiah is that of a savior, right? So a Messiah is somebody who, right, is going to save you from difficult circumstances. That's how we think of a savior. But a savior in Jesus' day and time, but a Messiah, the Messiah in Jesus' day and time, it definitely had that connotation, but it was a little bit different. So that word Messiah actually has a very specific root. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it literally means anointed one. And it has a history behind it. In the Middle East, back in the day, in the ancient world, 
when a king was coming to power, they would pour oil on the king's head, literally anoint him, and that would indicate that he had come to power. So a Messiah is literally what? A, a king, right? We don't necessarily think of it that way today. We just think, oh, Messiah is a savior. But it's very specific. A Messiah was a king. You with me? Okay, so what does a king do? A king rules over what? A king rules over a, a nation, a country, yes? All right, this is important because the problem at the time was that Israel was not its own independent nation, right? It was ruled over by what? The Roman Empire. So they, didn't, they were not an independent country to, unto themselves. So the role of the Messiah, this is what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah was supposed to raise an army, fight against the Roman government, free Israel, establish Israel as an independent nation, and then, finally, the Messiah would serve as Israel's new king. Yes? Okay. So there was a lot of anticipation at this time of the Messiah. When Jesus, around the time Jesus was born, everybody's like, when's the Messiah going to come and free us from the oppression of the Roman Empire? And this leads us to the final group I want to talk about today, who are the Zealots. And the Zealots, their job, what they believed, is that they were trying to free Israel, and they were going to do that by rebelling against Rome, literally trying to expel them from the Holy Land by force. That was their idea. Now, Zealots were located all over Judea, but do you want to know where they were located the most? It was around where Jesus was born, in an area known as Galilee. So, this is where you would find most of the zealots. Galilee, the people of Galilee, were very expectant of the Messiah. This group of people, they were very unruly. The people of Galilee were known for being volatile and hard to control. This area of Judea, so you can see where it is in Judea, this area was like the Wild West. They lived by their own rules, and rebellion and revolt were always right beneath the surface. I want to give you an example of this so you kind of understand what was happening. So if you remember last week, I told you that Herod was always paranoid about losing power. Remember I said that and how he like murdered his wife and his son and all that. So to give you a sense of where that rebellion was taking place, it was here in this area. So Herod dies in 4 BC. And after he dies... A group of rebels led by a man named Judas the Galilean. So it's him and like 2,000 of his followers. What they end up doing is they storm a city known as Sephorus. Now Sephorus was home to the wealthiest Jews in Galilee. And what you can see right here on this map, so you see where Nazareth is, which is where Jesus is from, and you can see Sephorus right there. It's only five miles away. That's important, and you need to keep that in mind for later on. So what happens is, Judas goes into the city of Sephorus, which is the wealthiest citizens of Galilee. Why does he choose this place? He chooses it because Herod, he knew that Herod had his royal armory there in Sephorus. So he goes in, he breaks into the armory and gets all of their weapons. And then he ransacks the city. He goes through the city, he starts killing all of the people in the city. Now, he has all these weapons, he's got all of his people, he's ready to rock, right? What do you think Rome does? Are they like, all right, well, I guess you took over the city. It's yours, right? No. They get their army together, and they come to Sephorus, 
And of course, they go toe-to-toe, -to -toe. the Roman army, much better trained than Judas and his associates. And so they go head-to-head, -head. they're fighting, and basically the Roman army takes them out. They kill a lot of the people, anybody who's still alive, they crucify them in mass, hundreds and hundreds of people all at the same time. Then, that's not, they're not done yet, the Roman army then gets upset at the citizens of Sepphoris for not better guarding the armory, and they kill all the men, and they sell the women and children off as slaves, and then they burn the city to the ground. Now, I tell you that because I want you to understand the world into which Jesus was born was very harsh and very violent. I think we often underestimate just how brutal that world could be. So imagine for a moment, because Nazareth is five miles away, and it's hard to see it in this map, but Nazareth is up in the hill country. And so it's looking down on Zephorus. So just to imagine for a moment, he's looking at this, like, well, he would, he would have just been born, because he was born around this time. But they could see Zephorus burning from Nazareth. They would have been able to see it at night. And if they walked the road to Zephorus, they would have seen Hundreds of people on crosses, dead, dying. I mean, all of them had suffered horribly. And so Jesus, as he grew up, he would have been hearing people say, you know what? We got to fight back. The only way to overcome this is revolution and revolt. That's what he would have heard his entire life because he was around all these zealots. And because of this, some scholars have suggested, there's a group of scholars who believe that Jesus was very closely aligned with the zealots. Now, you can certainly find that in the Gospels. You can find these sayings of his that are very closely aligned with that. But then you have other scholars who sit there and they say, well, Jesus is always debating with the Pharisees. So maybe he was a Pharisee. Maybe, maybe he just became one of them and he disagreed with them. Or some people say, well, maybe, no, no, no. He spent time with the Essenes because, remember, he lived a life of poverty, right? And he was celibate and he was into baptism. So maybe all of those things are because he was there. He was certainly not a Sadducee. The Sadducees, by the way, right, they're all wealthy. So that wasn't, that wasn't him. But the truth is, we don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. You can sit there and say he's a zealot. You're just as valid as anything that I would say. But I'll tell you what I think, which is I don't think that Jesus was any of them. I think he was exposed to all of these people, but I think he chose his own path. Because let's, say, let's just go, for example, and say that he was a zealot, right? He was a pretty poor zealot, if that was the case. Because he's the Messiah, right? Does he raise an army? No. Does he fight against Rome? No. Does he establish Israel as an independent nation and become their king? No. And on top of that, if you start looking at his teachings, they're not exactly zealot teachings, right? What does he say? He tells his disciples, don't get angry with anybody. I mean, the entire point of being a zealot is getting angry, is it not? He tells his people, hey, forgive your brothers and sisters. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So if somebody hits you, you don't fight back. He was a pacifist. He was nonviolent. He says to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, my goodness, it's the total opposite. And most people, by the way, if you look at his teachings, the vast majority of them, you will not find them anywhere. They are not representative of any group. And people thought he was crazy. His own disciples thought he was crazy. Because his disciples, by the way, are from this region as well. They were exposed to the zealots. And they looked at them like, you're, you're insane. 
But yet, Jesus' teachings, his particular zeal for the Lord, is revolutionary. His kind of love can change the world. And I want to end this morning with a very short story that I think illustrates his type of revolution in a remarkable way. This story takes place in 1963. Many of you all will know the name George Wallace. Some of you won't. But George Wallace, he ran for the governorship of Alabama. And as you can see in the background there, you know what kind of flag that is. So he wins, by the way, with 96% of the vote. And on his inauguration day, he has this very famous speech that he makes. And I want to play you a clip from that speech. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. So this is what he says during his inaugurational address, 1963. So clearly, this puts him at odds with Martin Luther King Jr., whose entire goal was to do what? To end segregation. And his speech would lay the groundwork for much of the violence that would take place when King and his movement would come to Birmingham, Alabama. So they come in, and of course what's happening is the police, they start using fire hoses to take people down. They attack people with dogs. It led to this photo right here, which is one of the most iconic photos of that march. And then a number of months later, the KKK would bomb the 16th Street Baptist Church because it was the center of where King was doing most of his work. Four little girls died in that bombing. Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Cynthia Wellesley, and Carol Robertson. And so a lot of people blamed George Wallace for this because his words kind of set the tone for how the people of Alabama were going to react, right? I mean, he's like, under no circumstances will we allow for anything but segregation. And understandably, the black community despised George Wallace. All right, so we fast forward, 1972. George Wallace is running for president of the United States under the Democratic ticket. He's in the primaries. And there are two people who are his primary challengers. The first is George McGovern, who would go on to win the nomination, and he would lose to Richard Nixon. And the second was Shirley Chisholm. She was a black congresswoman from the District of New York. So they're all out there on the campaign trail. They're going. And George Wallace, he gets shot five times. They attempt to, he's assassinated, but he lives through it, right? He gets shot, but he ends up having paralysis. He's paralyzed for the rest of his life. And what's interesting is that while he's in the hospital, Shirley Chisholm, she decides that she's going to go and visit George Wallace. And as she's going to do this, the people find out that she's going to do this, and they start getting very upset with her. And there was a a woman who worked on her campaign, her name was Barbara Lee, and she approached Shirley Chisholm and she says, what are you doing? Everybody is super angry at you for going to do this. Why are you going to talk to this man? He's running against you. He stands for everything that you're against, everything that you're fighting against. Why are you going to talk to this man? And I want to read to you 
what Shirley Chisholm said to Barbara Lee at that moment. Sometimes we have to remember we're all human beings. And I may be able to teach him something, to help him regain his humanity, to maybe make him open his eyes, to make him see something that he has not seen. You always have to be optimistic that people can change and that you can change and that one act of kindness may make all the difference in the world. So yes, I know people are angry at me, but you have to rise to the occasion if you're a leader and you have to try to break through and you have to try and open and enlighten other people who may hate you. As a result of Shirley Chisholm going to see her enemy, of showing him love and kindness, of showing him grace. George Wallace, the king of segregation, after he left that hospital, he renounced his racist past. And he spent the rest of his life going from black church to black church, begging their forgiveness. And I think that's remarkable. He spent the rest of his life trying to repair the damage that he had caused through his words and through his action. Now you sit there and you tell me that violence would have achieved the same thing. It wouldn't have. The fact is, when it comes to Jesus' words and his teachings, they are revolutionary. And if you are willing to embrace those things, if you are willing to embrace what Jesus said and really live it out like Shirley did, she was a Christian, she believed in that. That, my friends, is a revolution. At the time, people didn't understand it, and people don't even understand it to this day. But if you are willing to embrace that, if you are willing to celebrate why Jesus is the Messiah that truly can change the world, then you will understand what it means to truly celebrate his birth on December 25th. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.